Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, I'm Robin Lintz. Hello, I'm JC Love. And we've been making podcasts now, well, about 17 years. It's been a long time that we've been making podcasts, different we forms get of shambles podcasts. We murder. <laughs> we did, I can't try to remember the first one we did, but we did lots of people like Steve Merchant and Mark Steele and all. Uh, Billy Bragg, uh, that was one of my favourite ones, where uh, you said Ava Banana during the wrong bit of the Cockney sing-along that we did with <gasps> Billy Bragg. And, oh, you were admonished. Oh, it was oh, it's awful. It haunts me to this day. Yeah, the the, the, the ghost of Bragg's have a banana admonishment. Uh, anyway, we do. We still make loads of pop. In fact, we make more now than we've ever done. Uh, yeah. Like everyone else, of course, during lockdown. Uh, but we've we've made uh, a good few hundred during lockdown, and uh, we normally make two or three a week anyway. And mm-hmm. uh, who've we had on during? In, in we we had Tori Amos. You enjoyed doing Tori Amos. Oh, I loved it. I I, I mean. It was too much for me. There's been a few times when we've interviewed people and it's been too much for me. And I find it hard for my questions not to just be like, I love you. And that's not a question. It's not insightful. Um, Yeah, she was wonderful. And she recorded a message for my partner, Johnny, which I think was the highlight of his entire life. That's right. We've also had uh, yeah, Bernadine Evaristo, oh, Ruby yes. Wax. Uh, I've got I've got a new thing I'm doing with uh, with Stuart Lee and Alan Moore, uh, amongst others. Tim Peake, Alice Roberts, Mark Watson. So this is a thing we need to say, Robin. You're actually doing several interesting strands at the moment. You already do a lot of science shambles, a lot of interesting uh, genetic genetic shambles. Genetic shambles. Sunday science Q and A and. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, the uh, Uncanny Hour that I'm starting to do, where we're going to be doing things like Pender's Fen, Hawkwind in the 1970s, uh, the film Deathline, Mind the Doors, terrifying. Uh, I'm glad to hear you're talking about Deathline again, because the last time we talked about Deathline was when we did a podcast with Edgar Wright. And he took it as an insult that I said he looked like the cannibal that lived in the tunnels, even though he's very good friends with director Gary Sherman. So... (laughs) Well, basically, the thing we're going to say is uh, we're not eligible for any form of grant from the government, any form of bailout. We try and avoid and we have avoided so far having any form of advertising as well. So we kind of rely on uh, people supporting us. As, as we said, we try and make as much stuff uh, as uh, to be free. We do do stuff especially for uh, our Patreon uh, supporters as well. Only about 1% of people who listen to the show uh, support us um, via Patreon. We would love to get that up to about 5% because... We don't have any work anymore, do we, Josie? No, we don't. Sorry to say. Mm. So, please support us, patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. If we can gather up to 5% of listeners being able to support us, um, that would be absolutely yeah. amazing. What's funny is, I feel so bad saying this because I'm like, oh. but then every podcast I hear, it's people either have very long adverts or they have exactly the same spiel of like, if you do love the show, please consider being a Patreon to us. So, like, it's basically... That's all, all we're saying is if you do love the show, consider joining our Patreon because um, it's great and we put loads of extra content up there. Yeah, I mean, I would say like and subscribe, but you don't have to like pressing a button. You just have to internally mm. in, in, enjoy it. In fact, go yeah. beyond like. Try and, enjoy, try and love something. Enjoy and ascribe. That's exactly it. 
I am going to work on my ascribe button now. And aside from the Patreon that Robin has mentioned there, another way that you can support us is, uh, producer Trent here, by the way, but you probably know that by this point, um, is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, five stars, uh, anything less than five stars. I mean, you know, it's fine. Don't, don't, don't bother. Four, okay, five. That's really, that really helps us out. Leave a review as well. That would be much appreciated. And also remind you about Nine Lessons and Carols for Socially Distanced People. There is no compendium of reason this year in its normal fashion. Likewise, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People. So what we're doing instead is a 24-hour show, midday December 12 to midday December 13, broadcasting live from King's Place, hosted by Robin the entire time. Lots of special guests joining us both virtually and uh, quite a few will be joining us live in person at King's Place as well. There are select number, very few socially distanced tickets available to come and watch in person and be part of the recording and the mayhem that's going to be going on during the show. Go to kingsplace.co.uk slash nine lessons to get those or you can go to crowdfunder.co.uk slash nine lessons and support the charities that we'll be supporting during the show. Buy a virtual ticket there and get uh, there's some goodies you can get like signed exclusive posters and badges and stickers and that sort of stuff by donating there. The live stream of the whole thing will be free to watch but uh, but likewise uh, with the Patreon uh, with no, basically no tickets to be able to sell. Uh, we need to be able to cover the costs to do it and uh, we want to give uh, some money to the charities like we do every year. So the crowdfunder is a way to do that. Just some of the people who'll be part of the show is Robin, obviously, Josie, obviously, uh, Helen Chesky, Mark Watson, Marcus Brigstock, uh, Brian Cox, Chris Hadfield, Helen Sharman, Jocelyn Bell, Burnell, Chris Jackson, Tanita Tickerham, uh, Miranda Lowe, loads and loads of people. Um, so go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to see who we've announced so far, announcing some more people soon and there'll be surprise guests and you know how it works by this stage. Also make sure you're subscribed to the Science Shambles podcast. Uh, each week we put up two episodes on the Science Shambles podcast, the Science Book Shambles episode which is robin chatting to a science author with a new book out usually uh this week's episode is with the astronaut tim peak and then every sunday we put up our live stream a uh, podcast audio version of our live stream that we do every sunday at 3 p.m robin and helen chersky doing a science q a with different experts different topics each week the most recent episode is on uh, mental health in the pandemic joined by Professor Nav Kapoor and Dr. Dean Burnett. So check that out. Lots of great guests have been on that over the last six months or so. We've been doing that show on a Sunday. Richard Wiseman, Adam Rutherford, uh, Sarah Parkak, Brian Green, the, all the Trailblazers, Hannah Fry, uh, Jen Gupta, all sorts of people. So make sure you are subscribed to that as well. Anyway, here is today's episode. Robin with the authors of... Anyway, here is today's episode, Robin, with the authors of The Little Book of Humanism, Alice Roberts and Andrew Copson. 
Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Josie is in an area of Wales where not only is it in lockdown, but apparently they've locked down her Wi-Fi as well. So she is, uh, she was meant to be here. We attempted that kind of uh, weird Norman Collier-esque, uh, overly robotic um, communication. It didn't really work. It was kind of, it was interesting as an art piece. It was interesting as a piece of electro-free jazz, uh, but it was not necessarily going to grease the conversation we're going to have about humanism today. Um, because we have two guests on today who uh, have written a lovely book. It is a small book. It is a little book. It is called that. It's the Little Book of Humanism. And it is uh, a collection of... well, sometimes aphorisms, sometimes full paragraphs from George Eliot, um, with also a commentary around them from Andrew Copson and Alice Roberts. So, um, hello, both of you. Um, this was now when I was going through the the, the, the first thing. Uh, it, there's some lovely and and it is nice. There's a lot of George Eliot in it, which is great, which I like a lot because you know the, there are the obvious names you would expect in a, in in this book, and George Eliot was of course an incredible thinker, and her her work has uh things like Middlemarch which I I I finally reread having not enjoyed it at a level and realized how much I'd missed because I was too young and too stupid I remain too stupid I don't remain too young um but when you started this project were the certain people you thought this is the rich territory and how will we decide which of their 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 beautiful quotations will enhance this book Alice well, for me, it was the uh, the writers on evolutionary biology because you could have put great swathes of Richard Dawkins and Stephen Jay Gould into the book, and not next to each other. other. They didn't get not on. Not next to no <laughs> no fisticuffs. Um, yeah. So so for me, from that kind of science side, there was just so much, so much we could have we could have put into the book, and and you know, really beautiful, brilliant writing. So I'm I'm pleased that we have got. Uh, pieces from both of them in there but they you know it it was a question of really winnowing it down and we started off with with uh, enough for a very substantial book of humanism and gradually whittled it down until we got this kind of yeah gem of of all the best bits well did you i mean you you at at the moment online i I keep seeing you you know you you talk about your definition of humanism and um can you give me some sense of when you became aware of the notion of, of, of humanism? Yeah, it was quite late for me, actually. I mean, I had decided age 15 that I didn't believe in God. I was brought up in quite a strict religious household and we went to church every Sunday. And it was just, you know, that there was no room for uh, questioning, really. By the time I got to 15, I had a good serious think about it all. And I was doing sciences and I wanted to be a, a, a medical doctor. So I, I was very aware of the the origins of the universe not requiring any kind of divine intervention and evolution explaining how humans come to be. So uh, then you're kind of left going, well, so if, if Jesus existed, OK, let's 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 say he did exist. Is he really likely to have been some kind of deity? And is he really likely to have come back from the dead? And, you know, ultimately, I think that as an Anglican, you can probably take a lot of the uh, the Bible as metaphor and analogy. 
but you kind of do have to believe in God. So I basically argued myself out of it, aged 15. So at that point, I suppose I, I thought of myself as an atheist. What what worried me actually for quite some time was that I felt that that was a quite a, a negative definition, or it was a de- it was defining myself by an absence, rather than saying actually there's a lot I do believe in, and I do believe in the inherent goodness of uh, of humans, and I do believe in the uh, the ability of us to change the world rather than waiting for some kind of external power to do it for us. And so then when I discovered humanism, it was, as I think many people find this, and, and what's been lovely about publishing this book is that we've had so many people getting in touch about it and lots and lots of people saying, oh, I, you know, I, I didn't realise I was a humanist, but that is that is what I am. Some people don't like the label, and that's that's absolutely fine. I think the label's quite useful because it it... Um, it says that you're interested in a positive philosophy around human thought and morals and ethics uh, and, you know, the, the the scientific approach to the world as well. Um, but I hope that even if people don't feel able to label themselves a humanist, they'll still enjoy this book. And I think that, you know, also lots of religious people are enjoying it too. And and I think realising that there's a, there's an awful lot of uh, of material around philosophy and morals and ethics beyond the bounds of uh, of religion. And Andrew, you you know you've now been the demagogue of uh, um, Humanist UK for probably what over ten years now, is it? Did you say demigod or demagogue? Demigogue, I think oh, is demi- uh, yeah. Demigogue. It's um, whichever you prefer, <laughs> uh, to be honest. But you it, you it you're. Is I, I was wondering about there is there are some people who say that that humanists are that it's an arrogant label. I think it's I, I mean I personally think it's a misunderstanding on what humanists are saying, but but it does seem that that sometimes comes up. Oh, this idea that humans are just going to be able to sort everything out that seems to be an interpretation people have. Yeah, I think that that like you say that's a mistake. I mean, the word humanism obviously when it when it when it took on its current meaning in 19th, 20th century to describe this non-religious approach to life involving ideas about morals and meaning and, 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 and where we come from and where we're going, that sort of humanism. Um, it, the word humanism, the word human in humanism means human as opposed to divine, you know, as opposed to outside of humanity. Um, it tries to convey something about um, human capacity, human capabilities, um, human possibilities. It's, an exp- it's definitely an expression of optimism. It's saying there is something about us, you know, we can we can do things, we can understand the world that we're in, we can make progress, we can help each other. Um, so it is putting the human being at the centre of things, but not, I think, in an arrogant way, and certainly not in the way that some people suggest of pitching humans against other species. I think that's completely wrong. And we've got a section in the book where we make that clear you know in fact humanist thinkers have been some of those who've driven the rights of other animals forward more than anyone jeremy bentham peter singer um many of the movers and shakers behind the idea of um the the freedoms for animals um that are now internationally agreed for animals and human um control um so i think in that sort of sense um the idea that the human in humanism is is an arrogant um placing i think is completely wrong um, but but you're right. It is a, it is a it is a misnomer. I think it's good. I think it's good to keep the word humanist. I think it's good to use the word humanist. Although I 
people have said to me the same things that Alice has said. People have said to her about, you know, why call it why call it humanist? Why call it anything? Isn't it just common sense? Why use a label? And I think the response is, well, it's not common sense, unfortunately, um, is that actually um, the people who think these things are still um, a minority, although rapidly growing. And so you do need a word for it. I asked Michael Rosen, who wrote uh, a book for primary school children about humanism, this question when he was launching his book, you know, having an armchair discussion. I said, you know, Michael, some people say, why give it a word? Why, why have a label? Why label yourself? Um, and his answer was very tailored to a book for primary schools, um, but I think it's universally applicable too. He said, well, school is the, is the great time of naming. You know, you're learning the names for things, you're labeling things, so you can, un and you're not doing that just for fun, you're doing it so that you understand the world, so that you have a way to think, so you have a way to make sense of it. You know, what we can't discuss something if it doesn't have a name, we can't discuss something and, uh, and interrogate it and um, be in dialogue with it if we don't name it. Um, and that, that really answered the question for me, I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to use that answer from now on. And you did, thank you. And I did. Um, and the, the, uh, the end. <laughs> the George Eliot's probably my fault, by the way. I mean, we we did end up with a lot of uh, different uh, thinkers, but I certainly kept making the case for George Eliot. She, I've just realised since you said that she is the most quoted person in here. Did you realise? I, I thought she was, yeah. But, <laughs> yes. And I really, uh, and I'm glad. I think it's great. I mean, I think that's one of the things. I was born in the George Eliot Hospital. That's why we share a hometown. Also, it's as I know. Wonderful and. Uh, sorry, it's, I was going to say it's wonderful, and I think a lot of the quotes that we've got from her, oh, well, they're beautifully written, of course, uh, but they do relate to that point about humanism not being uh, about a, a very deep connection with nature. Can I so, read one of them? Because this is yes, one of my please. favourite quotes in here. And it's got a very, it was also a very lovely book to do um, as a creative project with a few of my art friends. So that's a that's a drawing by my lovely friend, Wendy. Uh we could never have loved the earth so well if we had had no childhood in it, if it were not the earth where the same flowers come up again every spring that we used to gather with our tiny fingers as we sat lisping to ourselves on the grass. And there's just you know, beautiful, it's a beautiful piece of prose. And it is about that kind of intimate connection with nature, which I feel really strongly as a biologist, actually. I, I think a lot of what I end up writing about biologically is about the the place of humans on the planet and the the place of humans with respect to all the other life on the planet and and the fact that again it's a it's a kind of a deeply humanist approach to uh how we conceptualize ourselves as uh, as humans i think that a lot of religions tend to argue for human exceptionalism uh, sometimes going you know to to an extreme where you say that that humans are um a, a special separate creation and I think even if you don't believe that, even if you accept evolution, there's still this kind of, I think it is a religious idea that there's something very, very special and separate about humans and that humans have um, been given dominion over over the rest of nature. And for me, biology uh, really knocks that idea completely off its perch and we just see ourselves as another twig on the, on the huge branching tree of life on the planet. And I, I think that that humbles us but it also puts us in context and it also means, for me at least, that actually there's even more responsibility towards all of those other species because we, we're we part of nature, not separate from it. And the extraordinary thing about humans is that we understand our impact. So with that understanding comes great responsibility. 
And that was really important to us writing the book, wasn't it? And I think it goes back to what Alice said earlier about what we wanted to do was to write about the positive aspects of this way of looking at the world. You know, we didn't want to write a book that said, you know, about human beings, they're not a special creation. They're not, you know, they're mm. not this, and they're not that. And we don't believe this. We, we wanted to, to write about what we do believe. What is the human being? And that's part of the answer. The human being is an earthling rooted in this world, you know, along with all the other species. And I think one of the reasons maybe why we find ourselves quoting people like George Eliot is because what they say is all positive you know she was someone who turned away from religion but that doesn't dominate the rest of her life you know for the rest of her life she's talking about human beings their feelings their thoughts their emotions their ways of living how we can help them how we can be better and you know I think that's um that that was something we both agreed at the very beginning is we didn't want to start a book that was sort of like like some books on humanism um are when they start about with chapters on all the things you reject you know we reject, yeah. this, reject this reject that don't believe this don't believe that don't believe this and then right at the end there's a little bit about what you do believe you know we yeah. wanted to start from 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 positive convictions see that's an interesting thing i was talking about this with andrew beforehand um alice which was just about um some people and and this obviously is moving towards uh atheist humanists and and there are religious humanists which maybe we can talk about that late, later on as well um but the uh um that idea where for some people the the loss of god becomes such a defining thing the anger that remains at something even when you don't believe in it anymore does seem to be quite a you know a, a negative problem to deal with to, to still have issues with the non-existent, even when you've defined it as no longer, you know, so, so you're shouting at nothing. I do think that probably, um, I, that is the case for some people. And I, and I do think that, that that probably comes from talking about religion with children very, very early on. And, you know, we have so much religion in schools in the UK. It's, it's quite strange, I think. And there's this, there's this idea that it's entirely benign I don't think it is I think it's quite potentially damaging psychologically damaging because you're told from such a such a small age that there is this invisible all-knowing presence in the world that I think you know even if you rationally remove yourself from that later on there's a lingering mm. feeling or a ling you know you've, you've, you've thought that way for so long and there's definite indoctrination in our schools. I mean, my, my own children go to a Church of England school. And it's, you know, again, a lot of people say, well, it's very benign. It's just about morals and, and ethics. But actually, those are, those are general morals and ethics that you don't need to couch in religion. And if you couch them in religion, I think that's um, worrying because if you reject the religion later, are you going to reject all those morals and values? Um, but certainly my daughter, who's 10 now, when she was four, came home from her reception class saying, mummy, God is all around. And I said to her, ah, oh, where, where do you think he or she is? And she went, in the walls? <laughs> I don't well, think this was a useful thing to be telling you. That's quite a scary own. idea, actually. <laughs> <It is. laughs> well, well, that is your, your uh, um, Christmas lecture uh, partner, Aoife. I'm sure she may well have told you the story that when, when Aoife McLeisat is a, a, a wonderful biologist uh, based at Trinity in Dublin, um, when uh, because she believed God was everywhere when she was being taught by the nuns, before she sat down, she used to make a sweeping movement across her chair so that, that she wouldn't accidentally sit on God. <laughs> And she says that she has no idea where it came from. We were talking a while ago. She says, I've just remembered this sweeping mocha. Oh, God's everywhere. So I just sweep across my chair and now I can sit down. I've moved God away. Um, 
one of one of the first quotes that you have in the book is uh, after obviously Kurt Vonnegut, who I think I'm, is is you know, God damn it, you've got to be kind. Let's you know the great great place to start. Um, Stephen Jay Gould talking about uh, connection. Um, that seems you you were talking about this a little bit a bit before us, and that seems to me something which is as we were talking before about the fact that. Humanism is not about human exceptionalism. Uh, that sense of connection, again, something which I wish was was far more people knew far more about. We're talking to, the other day to Paul Nurse, you know, and talking about the work that he did, where you basically find out that what exists in yeast that's been going for 1.5 billion years is basically the same mechanism that exists inside us and all other living things. And that once you have that that one detail, and he tells that story in his latest book in a, in a, in a beautifully succinct way. But when he tells that story, you just suddenly go, now that, however good your tree of life is that you've got on your wall, suddenly that, as, as we know, it's not necessarily the greatest metaphor now, tree of life, because it's far more complicated than that. But that level of connection seems to me to open up a totally different sense of what the living world is. It is. I mean, that's the big, that's the big message of uh, of evolution, isn't it? And that's the, that's the message uh, from, from biology that we are, we are connected to every single other life form on the planet and, and and that's real you know that is uh my my children know that so that is factually accurate that they are related to absolutely everything and and i think that's that's wonderful that's that's better than any picked up creation story and do you have a, in, in terms of the scientists that you wanted to um highlight i presume there must have been a point where you go right now we've got we can't really add any more and you have to start looking at certain quotations and you have to go how well served is this by the other quotations you must have had some forms of battle at times of deciding what didn't make it in are there any certain kind of thinkers uh authors poets etc you just think damn i wish we'd been able to put that one in hmm well, there was certainly, I mean, we didn't have battles, but we had very long drawn out discussions and um, about, uh, about whose favourite whose favorite quotes would make but it But I in. think it's quite well balanced um, as a result. I think so. Uh, and certainly as we were editing it, it was clear that you might have a couple of quotes where it's essentially they're expressing a very similar idea. Um, and in that case, it's just a question of who says it best. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And, and it's not like the whole book is quotes. I mean, you know, the, the quotes illustrate the, what we're saying about humanism. And I think that once we'd got that sorted, once we'd both written parts about the things that we thought were important. So, you know, which is what the chapters break down into, really. You know, there is a chapter about morality. There's a chapter about being part of the earth. There's a chapter about, you know, death. Once you've decided the points you want to make, then actually, like Alice said, it's um, the quotes almost choose themselves because you're literally just looking for the best quote. It's like pairing, you know, wine with food you're looking for the i'm not sure which whether are bits the food or the or the quotes of the food but anyway um you know you, you just you'd look for the right match and then it's there i think it chooses itself but there was a lot there was a lot more material than ended up like alice said in this book i mean there's a lot of quotes that um that didn't make it in i think i, I i'd like to maybe have had more um historians maybe i don't know they're not very well represented that's what i probably presumed was much like the uh, the movie about stephen hawking's life with eddie redmayne uh you know stephen hawking felt that there wasn't uh, en- enough science in it <laughs> uh, many other people felt there wasn't enough romance in it and i i know that you uh, andrew can't stand science you find it boring and rubbish. <laughs> this is not true alice don't listen everything was just 
classics. That's all you want to do. <laughs> You, want to, you know, there's. Uh, um, but I do. It, think was, it was important to us, wasn't it, to have yeah. some have some contemporary writers and thinkers as well. Um, so uh, we wanted to represent that kind of really deep history going back to 2600 BCE with the Shavaka um, exactly. school of Indian philosophy. Uh, but then we wanted to bring it right up to date as well. So I'm really pleased to have quotes in there from people like Adam Rutherford, who you know is writing about. Uh, biology and racism and uh, genetics and with a with a deep kind of humanist vein running through his writing so it was yeah it was really important to to have you know stuff that was hot off the press as well as stuff like well, I also know Stone. I think he'll be very pleased to know that he's quoted uh, twice as many times as Kurt Vonnegut that's not going to go to his head um the uh, no, I realise that you would have contemporary people, but I realise that with Andrew, generally, if it hasn't got BCE attached to the end of it, then he's he's very you know he's, this he's is, dissatisfied. This is, this is all. This is calumny. There the, the must have been a point. Was there was there a point where you went, oh God, Bertrand Russell? Which ones do we pick? Because Bertrand Russell, of course, is probably the most heavily quoted humanist. And to choose which ones are, and an interesting case as well, because of course, uh, publicly brilliant, um, privately not always as great a humanist as we might might have hoped. So there's an interesting thing that kind of goes on there with with Bertrand Russell. But what was there a, the, the point where you went? No, the, the, we have to have a limit on how many Bertrand Russell quotes we're going to have in this. We did have a lot more Bertrand Russell than we ended up using, actually, didn't we? Alex? Yeah, we That's did. We well, you could basically you could basically create a little book of humanism out of just Bertrand Russell, couldn't mm. you? That's true. That's true. Yeah. I think what, one of the one of the things that actually I hope this is true of you, Alice, as well. But writing the book together, that was very enjoyable because um, I felt like we were really both straying outside of our immediate fields of expertise, and it just showed what a breadth of knowledge Alice has. Actually, in my experience, uh, Robin, and maybe she'd say the same about me. I don't know. Um, is that it would be um, it would be wrong to say that Alice was <laughs> yeah thanks Alice this is actually going out as an audio I believe so people who are listening won't have seen Alice shake her head so oh. I idea that I would have had a breadth of knowledge however <laughs> um you know I think that we were both equally interested as it turned out in, in in the science and the humanities aspects of this and you know we've got novelists we've got philosophers we've got artists people like Frank Turner as I was saying a moment ago as well as well um so I think it's quite well balanced from that point of view and I think that is something that we both wanted to convey about humanism I mean there are there's no doubt that some of the, the best known popularizers of humanist ideas have been scientists and philosophers but that's not the beginning and end of it you know there's and that's and that's why i think it's so good there are so many different types of people from many different walks of life human rights activists as well as um, everyone else that i've just mentioned um in this book and i think probably in the end we we contributed um as as many quotes and insights from outside our immediate expertise as from within it actually i think in the end it was quite a dynamic process i thought back and forth uh, well, I think actually that's one of the things I really enjoyed about it because um, it's it was lovely to work with you, Andrew, on it because obviously you've got such a, a breadth of knowledge about the the history of humanism and humanist thinking, and and I think working on a book like this where I felt I felt really kind of personally enriched by the end of it, uh, I you know I was I, I'm happy to see all the scientists that are in there that uh, from you know works that I'm really familiar with. But there were a lot of people who I hadn't read, um, or at least you know I'd only read uh, I'd only read brief quotes. I hadn't I hadn't actually delved into their writing in any more detail. Um, so I, I mean that's what I hope this book does actually. Uh, you know it does it does reveal that kind of uh, tapestry of uh, of humanist thinking 
and and the fact that it's not it isn't just scientists and it isn't actually isn't just historians that, that you know, there are so many there are so many different threads of humanism through lots of different subject areas and and completely crossing uh, from science into uh, the humanities as well so yeah I do I mean I think it was quite well balanced in the end and and also you uh, the nice thing about the the scientists who uh, whose quotes were mining here is that you realize that um you know they are great communicators as well in yeah. their own right yeah right. i definitely felt better about science by the end of this process robin you'll be glad to hear than at the beginning you know i'm a convert honest from the iss onwards you just won't have any of it um this uh, I, I, there some, some lovely james baldwin quotes as well uh, i would have imagined james baldwin was a tough one as well to actually go hang on which because i mean just some of the some of the beautiful sim simplicity but the you know, not everything that his face can be changed but nothing can be changed until it is faced uh and there's another baldwin in there and, and i just think you know there, there was some very interesting choices Baldwin was really important to me to have in there. I mean, because, you know, Bald James Baldwin is a classic example of someone um, whose humanism is almost completely invisible in, in what people know about him today. And yet, you know, whenever he was in the UK, for example, he would speak to humanist groups. He spoke at the Cambridge Humanists a couple of times, you know, um, and uh, there was a very important part of his life and the, you know, the internal environment of his own ideas. People think of him as being, you know, great for... Um, uh, the black rights struggle or gay rights struggle or just a brilliant novelist, right? But but actually there's this whole other side to him and that's a bit like Alice was saying a moment ago. I think one of the things that this book hopefully does is excavate um, the, the humanism of people for whom um, that isn't the front and centre thing in people's minds and, and, and that allows us in a way to point to the sort of ideas that they're expressing. I mean, I don't know many, um, you know, uh, books on humanism that would have so many quotes about uh, social action, about ideas about society, about equality, and even though these are core humanist beliefs, mm, right, um, mm. that we all, we all just state them as propositions, we don't illustrate them. But once you look at people like James Baldwin and realize this guy is a humanist, you know, self-confessed, uh, self-confessed, sound like a crime, self-described um, humanist and so on, and then suddenly a whole world of art and literature opens up to you, which you can point to by way of illustration to illustrate the sort of propositions of humanism that you spent time trying to, you know, describe and promote, suddenly you can illustrate them with you know all the novels of George Eliot or all the novels of George Foles or all um, the novels and essays of um, James Baldwin. George Orwell is another example. Not many people know that George Orwell also saw himself within that humanist tradition and wrote about the difference between a humanist approach and a religious approach. People think of George Orwell as you know for all the things they think of him for in 1984 Animal Farm but what but suddenly you realize 1984 and Animal Farm these are humanist texts. You know, these are these are stories by a humanist, and that illustrates for you what the humanist way of thinking um, can really be about. And so I think that, you know, that was that was a good reason to use James Baldwin. But it also is, this book should have been ten times the length, really, shouldn't yeah. it? I'm now realising we should have used so many. Um, oh, don't worry. There's loads of spin-offs you can bring out. Bring out very Christmas humanist, uh, Happy Mother's humanist, all of those ones. You, you will be the little book of calm. I think we should do some follow-up books. Some little. I think uh, we probably should. Yeah, just yeah. for Robin. They kept. You know what? If it fits on a counter and it's selling okay, you can keep doing new books. <laughs> this is there was um. Carl Sagan, uh, unsurprisingly, is quoting this, and the one one quote. It's it's interesting because because some of it 
is you know is very apparent and you read it and sometimes you think oh hang on a minute this is now taken an idea that's been swimming in my head uh without definition and then a great writer has managed to turn it into something which solidifies it for for, for ourselves as well but the the quote that i think is probably the hardest one is when carl sagan you have near the end of the book it's far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion however satisfying and reassuring and i think that might be one of the it's something i know i've talked about with andrew before um i'm not sure i've talked about you asked before but which is from a position of of some form of stability or a level of kind of i suppose you know the 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 privilege at least of of knowing that you uh you know where your food's coming from you have a all of those things sometimes we i look at those quotes and i think oh yeah that's fine for me but if your life is really terror, and that's when I think it gets hard for 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 human, when it actually gets hard for something that is based in 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 a solid reality, is if everything seems terrible. Um, can we still manage to jemmy the myth away from people who may be experiencing some of the worst things that are imaginable? I don't think. Um... I don't think I'm interested in doing that. And I don't think Andrew is either. Um, you know, we're not in that business of telling people what they should or shouldn't believe in. And that, in fact, is a very core humanist principle <laughs> that people should have freedom of religion or belief. You know, that is that is absolutely fundamental. So I'm, I'm not an evangelical humanist. Sorry, I mean... Uh, that's I not want to quite... talk about humanism, but I don't want to. I don't want to convert people away from from their that, faith. That's not necessarily what I meant. What I meant was actually the the not necessarily your. But is it always better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion? Do we agree so, with Carl I, Sagan, that's what you're asking us. Do we agree yeah, with Carl? Which I don't think we would say that we agreed with every quote in the book. By the way, no, I mean, no, no, so these are illustrative uh, quotes. I, I do believe in. I do agree with. And, and, you know, it's something I think about a lot because it's something that I very much want to believe is true. And I think there's many scenarios that I've looked at and I've tried to work them through and talk to people who've sometimes been through terror and, and found roots through it. But it's still something that as a humanist, I can I can sometimes find difficulty with. So, yeah, rather than, than convert, you know, the idea of but for us individually, whether we go, how you know, is when is the point where sometimes for people like ourselves who are, um, you know, not keen on the idea yeah. of believing in things which appear to be delusions? I think there are two ways of dealing with this. Actually, I think one of them is well, you know, turn the question on yourself. You know, how how would you feel about it? You know, how are you? How deluded would you be willing to be yourself in order to feel happy? And I think that's because when we're talking about other people, we can often take a very lofty view. I'm not saying this is the view that you've taken, but we can sometimes go, ah, it's all right for us. You know, we're so terribly clever and affluent. Um, but what about the people who, you know, can't manage without this cotton wool blanket? Of, um, I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but I think there's, there's something of that in sometimes mm, the, yeah. this question. Um, so I think an interesting way of trying to deal with the question you've asked is to try and turn it back on yourself and say, like, how, how happy would you be to persist in falsehood and delusion um, when the truth was available in order to be happier? That's, that's, that's that one question I think we should ask ourselves. Um, I think the second thing that we, the second way of dealing with it is to say, is to import a very useful humanist concept around thinking about morality, which Alice and I were very keen to make sure was in the book, which was the idea of complexity and context. You know, no two um, 
situations that we face in our life are identical um, and so and, and context is relevant so I think if I answered your question by saying at the deathbed of an old lady who you know had minutes left to live um, and she turns to me and says um, you do think I'll see my husband again don't you um, I'm gonna say yes I'm going to say, yes, I'm sure you will. Um, I'm absolutely certain you will. In fact, I can hear him, you know, I mean, he's calling to you. You know, I'm absolutely going to do that. Um, and that's, but that's a far end of one spectrum. In a situation where there is a child asking me with its eyes, you know, brimming up with tears. Um, but is it really true what you're saying that in fact, you know, Fluffy is just in the ground and hasn't gone to heaven after all? My answer is going to be different. You know, mm -hmm. And I think that, 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 that there are contexts there to think about. Um, and I think that Carl Sagan, wise as he was, you know, you can't illustrate something, everything about one's, someone's thought with just one quote. Um, and I would apply that judiciously in context. I would say, yes, in general, it is better to know the truth for all sorts of reasons. Um, because, you know, you want to live a life of integrity, corresponds with reality, and because you never know what's going to happen next. Even if you think that you're protecting someone by keeping them in delusion at this moment, you don't know whether you're still going to be around to do that the next day. And you don't know if the situation might change in the next day. And you don't know if the same delusion that seems comforting to them, um, i.e. that they're going to go to heaven and that everything's going to be all right in the end, um, might not lead to themselves killing themselves too early in the delusion that they'll proceed on to the next life or killing someone else in the hope that they there's a great short Ian e. Forster short story about this um you know when uh he's he's persuaded uh, a Christian missionary has persuaded um someone that you know there is a life to come and it's all all fine you know and so they kill him you know and he's gone because he's that's what he wants he's gone to the next world therefore you know um so I think that um you you apply any general principle judiciously in context don't you including yeah. including even those of Carl Sagan oh yeah no, I, I'm not saying he's wrong he, I'm interested you know, he's, in that he's also talking I think you know that if you approach it from a very personal perspective then I suppose what he's saying is that you've got to be honest with yourself mm. and that you can't really derive any real solace mm. from from being dishonest with yourself so once you've once you've arrived at a uh, a point in your own philosophy where you don't believe that there is any supernatural dimension to the world then it would seem it would seem very odd indeed to make it up just to feel a bit better about something mm. or even to persist even if you started questioning if you started you know started scratching at that scam mm. you know is it really is it going to be better to, to well sometimes it's better to leave it so that's a bad example actually bad analogy um, if you started this is to, one of the many <laughs> reasons you didn't become a doctor yes but if you you know this you started to be skeptical you started to feel the uneasiness of 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 of, of skepticism of doubt about the things that you've believed um can it be right to just squirrel back under the covers you know or, or is it better actually to try and think about the doubts that you're having expose them more you know mm. do a little mental spring cleaning and like alice said that's the that's the context for this i think so in summary robin you are quite wrong and oh, this, oh, <laughs> exactly. yet again we find out that humanism is not open to engagement or discussion we've told you why you're not right the uh but can i never I say, said i was i, say, I asked say one question. more thing about no that question, question. <laughs> one more thing uh, which is that i think that 
for a lot of people who go from uh i suppose religion to a position of uh, of of no faith and and possibly then calling themselves a humanist it starts with really deep moral questions about the real lack of solace in religion if you start to look at the world and bad things are happening to you and bad things are happening to people around you and uh, bad things are happening to the planet and then you say but i believe in a i believe in a deity that is meant to be benign and and benevolent so so what's going on here and it actually takes us back to St. Augustine's paradox, which um, I'm surprised didn't lead to him being completely humanist by the end of it, which is, you know, that either God is good or um, all powerful. He can't be both because of the existence of of bad things, because of the existence of uh, of suffering in the world. So either if you if you do believe in this deity, either he or she is as not is not as powerful as you thought she was. And therefore, why? Why should you? place belief in them and be praying to them or which is slightly more sinister they are all powerful but they're not all good which again makes you think well should I believe in them or not so I do think there's a you know there's a there's a place where actually religion offers solace in some ways but it comes at a pretty high price Little Book of Humanism, as I said, is is a is a wonder, and I know it's been tremendously successful. It's doing doing, doing very very well, and it is it's it's that it's a lovely thing for um, kind of lasting at night, or whatever. You just think, oh, I I want some thought to take me into slumberland, which is intriguing. Um, but uh, Have I you wanted really to quit reading it, Robin. Have you really yeah, been reading? I've read it like the whole that? thing. Isn't that lovely, Alice? It yeah. is really lovely. I, I also really hope it will be useful for people who are maybe thinking about humanist weddings or or, or humanist funerals or naming. Oh ceremonies. yeah, but you'll end up with that thing where I didn't, re- you, know, you know, that that bit where you go, oh, you had that reading at your humanist celebration, <laughs> and then we have to work much harder. What are you having as your reading? I'm having the whole of Enduring Love by Ian McEwan, uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever it might be. But uh, do you have a favourite? Uh, or, or in your reading, I presume this also took you back to reading whole books. You weren't really, you know, merely reading quotations. Is there someone that you've either come back to or really your views have changed positively um, about their work? Alice? I think uh, Stephen Jay Gould. I, I, I grew up reading Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, and I think that that had a huge influence on my kind of own philosophy on life, as well as my understanding of biology. And... I kind of go away and and don't read any ghouls for a while and then you know it's probably it's probably a good 10 years before I've actually sat down with a book of his essays and and read them again and they're just endlessly fascinating and they they are still so resonant today you know he does he talks about really sometimes quite niche bits of evolutionary theory and illustrates them with uh, bits of contemporary culture he always loses me a bit when he starts talking about baseball but apart from the baseball I, I, I love him I love him and the other person um, who I, I think his his writing is so infused with humanism is is Philip Pullman um, mm. just amazing and I've possibly my favorite quote in the book it's very difficult to choose one isn't it but I think if you have to choose one that really sums up in a nutshell what it's about I would like to live to the full right now and I would hope that I live in such a way that the world is a little bit better after I leave it than it was when I arrived. Yeah, but that's very, very, and and, and for you, Andrew? Came back to two um, people who I hadn't read for a while, James Baldwin, who we've discussed, and George Eliot, actually, both of them. Um, and 
interestingly, um, it was uh, not so much their novels as other things that they'd written, which I hadn't necessarily read so much of before, because I think, you know, when you when someone's fixed your mind as a novelist, you don't necessarily pick up their essays or go looking for their other other writings. But in both cases, it was very rewarding. And I did end up reading Middlemarch again. I read, reread Middlemarch like every six years or so, I think. But um, yeah, so George Eliot, because of everything we've said, her humanity and her her positive um, construction on things. Very, very contemporary. I really think she's so modern. Like a lot of those mid-Victorians, she's actually incredibly modern. It's like the 20th century didn't happen. You know, they could be writing today. Um, and James Baldwin, well, especially actually because of what he writes about America and what we're seeing in America now in terms of um, both race relations and the wider quest for justice. You know, he, he it was interesting to reread some of his stuff in that because I'd, I'd only knew, known him as a novelist. Um, and initially, like every young gay man or every young gay man of a certain literary bent um, had read Giovanni's Room when I was, you know, young and winsome back a long time ago. And um, knew him not just as a novelist, but primarily as a gay novelist. And to re read his uh, uh, more writings, that more you know, about uh, contemporary life, not fiction or non-fiction, um, was, was quite a revelation. So those two actually came back to them, but in a new way. Brilliant. Thank you both very much. We should just briefly mention, actually, uh, the, as we've been talking a little bit about science, about um, uh, a, a, a great science writer um, who uh, has just died in the last few days, who is John Barrow. And uh, I just want to mention John Barrow because John Barrow really was one of the uh, uh, just it, it, I, I spoke to Carlos Frank, who's a cosmologist based up in a, a few months ago. And he said, John is just incredible. The speed in which he writes, the fact that he is so uh, he, he can give you an idea which is way beyond me not beyond you Alice possibly beyond you Andrew I can't be entirely sure I can be certain of myself but nevertheless he can engage you in the idea that it still changes you and it changes the universe and his books like The Constance of Nature and uh, and The Artful Universe and, and many others uh, I would highly recommend amongst all the people we've been talking about of course go to all of their works but also um, John Barrow very great science writer and uh, someone who uh, is worthy of your time uh, thank you very much for joining us to talk about the little book of, uh, of humanism um, and uh, you may now continue with the rest of your life thank you very much Trent Burton and we'll find out whatever happened to uh, Josie, the signal gave out and it was very much like that first scene of a horror movie where they explain that the Jeopardy will exist because there's no contemporary communication available. That's the main thing they do in horror movies now. They have to immediately go, oh, I can't get a mobile phone signal. Good. Well, <laughs> now let the death. But I don't think, I think she's having a holiday probably. She's Thanks swimming anyway. somewhere, isn't she? She's swimming yeah, she's in, a, piece. in a clin. In oh, a yeah, because she'll be off wild swimming, won't she? Yeah. Thank you very much, everyone. And thanks very much, Trent Burton, our producer as well. And thank you very much to everyone who supports us uh, on Patreon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Little Book of Humanism is out now from all good independent retailers, or you can go to Hive and get it there, or other websites are available as well. A lot of people still don't know about Hive. Hive's a great online book retailer, uh, really good prices on there, and also... Uh, when you complete your purchase, you get to nominate your local independent bookshop and a portion of the sale goes direct to that independent bookshop. So you can still support your local independent shop without uh, actually going out uh, to the shop. So personally, uh, a little plug for one of my favourite local independent bookshops uh, is Broadway Books on Broadway Market. So... If I get a book through Hive, you can select them and uh, part of the proceeds goes to that bookshop. And you can do the same with whatever bookshop you like.
Back next week, new episode. Robin and Josie will be talking to Kit Duval next week. Hope you enjoy that. Have a great week. Stay safe. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.